Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Well, let's give careful attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an empty tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Focusing our attention this morning upon verses 10 through 12. As the Apostle Paul is citing as we mentioned, Psalm 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Not one. The Apostle Paul here is very clear and direct about what he's asserting. Uh, This is the sort of statement, of course he's quoting Psalm 53, but nevertheless, this is the sort of language that if somebody that you know made statements like this one after the other, you might say in in jest, uh, tell us what you really think. You know, the Apostle Paul is very clear. None righteous, not one. There's really no room for latitude here. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Uh, Who has turned aside? All of them. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. And we've been considering each of these clauses and phrases week by week. And 
Every time, it's just so explicit, so clear. And yet, in some sense, the difficulty in understanding and applying what Paul is saying comes from the fact that there is no ambiguity. That he's so direct, so all-encompassing and universal in his description of human sinfulness and human fallenness. He says it in such a stark way and he quotes such a stark verse that it does raise questions. It does force us to ask at times, what exactly is our text saying? Because this text can be misunderstood. It can be misrepresented. I think we'll see that in a moment. But in this case, it's the lack of ambiguity that in some sense creates these questions. And we say, what exactly is our text saying? I mean, when Paul says there's nobody who does good, not one, who is he talking about? Who is he not talking about? What is he saying? What is he not saying? And I think this morning we need to begin by clarifying what our text is not saying. And to some extent, we've made some of these qualifications in recent sermons, but I think it's especially important on this statement, there is none who does good, no, not one, that we clarify what our text is not saying. This text is not denying the natural man's natural ability to perform works which are outwardly moral and practically beneficial. Our text says that among the unregenerate, the unconverted, the natural man, uh, there is none who does good. But in saying that, it is not denying that the natural man does have a natural ability to perform works which are outwardly moral and practically beneficial. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Romans says that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now chapter 7 tells us that the law is spiritual. We're not saying, Paul is not saying here that the Gentiles who've never read a Bible, who are unconverted, who are spiritually dead as a doornail, he's not saying that these are spiritual people performing deeply spiritual holistically good works. But he is saying that those who don't have the Scriptures by nature do the things in the law in an outwardly moral sense. The wicked, even the Gentiles, they're not as evil as they could be. And sometimes they do things that are practically beneficial. They make personal sacrifices for those around them. There are people among the Gentiles, people that have never read a Bible, that work hard and provide for their families and protect their families. And you, you hear of instances of people that are unconverted and yet they give their life to protect their children. And that's outwardly moral. You can have unregenerate, ungodly nations who are attacked by an aggressor, by a foreign army, and they raise up an army to defend themselves. And we call that a just war. They don't have to be regenerate for it to be a just war. There's an outward standard of conduct, an outward moral code grounded in the Ten Commandments, God's law, whether they have a Bible or not. It is written upon their hearts. 
it has been clouded and defaced by sin, and yet it is there in a remnant, and they're engaged in a just war. And, and there are unbelievers that perform outwardly moral and practically beneficial works. And if we come to the point where we begin to deny that, we're just going to have a hard time making sense of the world. Uh, we're living in a bubble. If we don't see unbelievers doing things that are practically beneficial and at least outwardly moral. In fact, in Romans 13, in verses 3 and 4, Paul is dealing with the civil magistrate. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Now, rulers don't have a duty to figure out who's regenerate and who's not before they decide whether to charge someone with a crime or not. When they look at good versus evil works, they're evaluating them in terms of outward moral principles, not dealing with things that are inwardly deeply spiritual, but is somebody violating the outward moral code that God has revealed in His Word? And that is the role of the civil magistrate. Uh, Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And uh, he goes on to deal with it in terms of this, these outward moral principles. That is the blueprint for the civil magistrate. And yet, it would not be possible if every unregenerate person uh, was devoid of any sense of outward morality. Uh, they'd, they'd all be put to death. They'd all be executed or imprisoned or, or what have you. Um, Acts chapter 28, I think, is helpful in bringing some clarity to this point. Acts chapter 28 and verse 2. Here Paul and his associates had been shipwrecked and they arrive on the island of Malta. Verse 2, the natives showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So when the Bible says, when Paul says, not one of them does good, not a single one, Paul is not denying that these ungodly, unconverted, idolatrous natives had the capacity to show them kindness, even unusual kindness and hospitality. Verse 7, in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. In terms of external principles of morality, there was some outward conformity to God's law in this individual. Verse 10, they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So Paul is not denying the natural man's natural ability to perform works which are outwardly moral and practically beneficial. Uh, By the way, another example here, just in case there's any doubt, there's a fairly well-known incident in the life of Solomon that occurs in 1 Kings 3 where Solomon shows his wisdom in adjudicating a dispute between two prostitutes. 
two ungodly women that unless they repent are headed for hell, okay? I mean, if they didn't repent, they're in hell as we speak. But, but these are unconverted people. The, the kind of people that Paul is saying not one of them does good in a sense. But he's not denying their ability to perform works which are outwardly moral and practically beneficial. Notice 1 Kings 3.16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead." But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. So the one harlot pulls a switcheroo, steals the living child, replaces that child with the child which had died. And they have a dispute, and they both claim to be the genuine mother of the living child. And the king, verse 24, said, King Solomon, he says, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living, so this is the genuine mother of this child, and yet she's an unconverted harlot, uh, but the woman who's actually her son spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child. In other words, give the child to the other woman and by no means kill him. But the other said, let, me, uh, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. In other words, she's saying just cut the child in half. Kill the child. But the real mother has compassion. She'll even give up her child to somebody else to save the child's life. By the way, somebody tells you all sinners are equally wicked. Go to this passage. Um, That's pretty much the end of that discussion. Uh, So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. What is Solomon discerning in this woman? He is discerning uh, natural affection. Even an unconverted woman, natural affection for her child. Natural affection for her child. So, uh, and she's willing to sacrifice to keep that child alive. So we're not denying here the natural man's natural ability to perform works which are outwardly moral and practically beneficial. By the way, if you read Calvin's Institutes, it's a big emphasis for Calvin. We need to be thankful to God that he has given. Even with all of the sin and wickedness and idolatry in this world, we need to give thanks to God for the, for the gifts and the abilities and the restraint of human sinfulness that enables this natural affection to come forth in the world and, and keep this world from becoming hell on earth. Uh, now, again, as uh, Romans 1 told us, 
God in judgment removes this natural affection at times, and we need to be mindful of that as well. But let's be thankful for that. There are unbelievers that do things that are good for us or beneficial for us in an outward way. In addition, uh, our text is not saying, or it's not denying, the born-again believer's supernatural, God-given ability to perform genuinely spiritual, God-honoring good works, albeit imperfectly. Let me say that again. Our text is not denying the believer's supernatural, God-given ability to perform genuinely spiritual, God-honoring good works, albeit imperfectly. So when we say not one of them does good, we're not denying that regenerate, born-again believers do good things, perform good works. That we're not denying that believers, by the grace of God, work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And through God willing and working in them, they will and do unto God's good pleasure. Though our good works are imperfect, yet through Christ, God takes pleasure in them because they are His handiwork. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.16, He says to His people that uh, we ought to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So God's people do good works. When it says not one of them does good, the them is referring to the natural man. It's not referring to those who are born again. Um, Acts 9 verse 36 says that Tabitha was a woman who, who was filled with good works. She had done many good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that those who are saved by grace through faith, which itself is a gift, perform good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In fact, coming to church today, you have a duty to seek to stir up your brothers and sisters to love and good works. If that was impossible, it wouldn't make any sense for that exhortation to be included in the epistle to the Hebrews. So, we do have a duty And we have an ability by God's grace not just to do things that are outwardly moral and practically beneficial, but to do things that are genuinely spiritual, that are the genuine result of God's Spirit in us, the Spirit of Christ living through us and enabling us to perform God-honoring good works. Now, these good works are not sufficient for our justification. Our right standing with God cannot hinge upon our good works because the fact is that our good works are imperfect. They're not as good as they ought to be. They still fall short of the glory of God. And so, uh, they're, they're not good works such as would justify us before God, but having been justified, the blood of Christ washes and cleanses and consecrates and makes acceptable all of our good works, all of our service to the Lord. I'm not going to make reference to all the different uh, statements in your handout, but if you, if you read your handout, if you look at these excerpts from the Westminster Standards, you'll find that everything I'm saying here is, is right there 
in chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on good works and, uh, and larger catechism 25. So, but listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. This is speaking of our worship, but worship is a good work, perhaps the best work. Our eternal rest in heaven will be dominated by this work of worship. But notice it says, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's true of all of our good works. They're acceptable to God, not in themselves as a basis for justification, but having been justified through the death and resurrection of Christ and the imputation of Christ's obedience and sacrifice to our account. Therefore, our good works are acceptable to God. And and again, they are His handiwork and He takes pleasure in them. So our text is not denying the born-again believer's supernatural, God-given ability to perform genuinely spiritual, God-honoring good works, albeit imperfectly. In addition, our text is not directly asserting the inadequacy of the believer's imperfect good works for justification. It's not directly asserting the inadequacy of the believer's imperfect good works for justification. As I just mentioned, those good works are inadequate. They're imperfect. uh, And yet, that's not the point of this statement. Now, it may be an indirect application or implication of the statement, but the main focus of Paul here is not the fact that, dear believer, that your genuine good works are not sufficient for justification. There are other passages we could go to for that. Isaiah 64.6, even our works of righteousness, our righteousnesses are filthy rags in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul refers to his own uh, religious works in Philippians chapter 3 as dung. Um, Luke chapter 18 says that even after we've done all that we can possibly do, we're unprofitable servants. So our good works are not going to earn or merit anything in the sight of God. Even if we've done all that we we need to do, we're unprofitable, and how much less profitable in that we have failed to do many things. And the things we've done have been uh, corrupted by sin. But that's not the the direct focus here. Uh, It's implied But when it says none of them does good, it's specifically speaking of the unconverted natural man when it makes that statement. Well, what is our text saying? Our text which says there is none who does good, no, not one, is saying that it's denying that the natural man can do anything that is genuinely spiritually good and acceptable to God. Our text is denying that the natural man can do anything that is genuinely and spiritually good and acceptable to God. And now I would make reference to your insert, Larger Catechism 25, which speaks to us of the sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell. Listen to the language here. 
The sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or lack of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin. Notice the standards here are using original sin, I believe, in its broader sense of not just referring to the guilt of Adam's first sin, but focusing here our attention upon the sinful corruption that we've inherited from our father Adam by natural generation. Commonly called original sin or the sin in man's original nature. Our inherent sin would be another way to put that. Our inherent sinfulness. And from which do proceed all actual transgressions. So notice the language here that what Paul is addressing here is, is the, the way in which man is utterly indisposed. So he's not moved and inclined toward what is good, but he's inclined toward what is evil. He's disabled. He's made incapable of doing these things. He's in fact made to be an adversary of that which is truly and spiritually good. He's made opposite unto it. But notice the way it's qualified. All that is spiritually good. All that is spiritually good. So, uh, the Reformed teaching here is not that the natural man is incapable of doing outwardly moral, practically beneficial things, but the Reformed teaching here in our confession and catechisms is emphasizing that man can't do anything spiritually good, genuinely good, involving the whole person, not just some instinct or some outward inclination or outward conformity, but the law is spiritual. And the natural man can't do anything that is truly and spiritually good and acceptable in the sight of God. Look at Confession of Faith, chapter 16, section 7. It's on the back side of your yellow handout. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands, there's the outward morality, and of good use both to themselves and others, there's the practical benefit, yet because they proceed not from an heart purified by faith, or are done in a right manner according to the Word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive or worthy to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Okay? So this is not a cop-out for the unregenerate to be unconcerned about morality. It's even worse when they do things that are explicitly and just holistically evil, but even when they do things that are outwardly moral and practically beneficial because it doesn't come from a true heart of faith and love for God and a desire for the glory of God. It's not motivated in a righteous way. It's not to a righteous end or purpose. 
and it doesn't emanate from an inward righteousness. Because of all these things, it is displeasing in the sight of God. They, they're incapable of anything that is spiritually good and acceptable to God. Now, that's stating it in a negative way. We're saying what they're incapable of. But stated positively, our text is teaching that even the best works of the natural man are... And let me just... Uh, rattle off a number, of, uh, a number of things here. The best works of the natural man are dead works. Dead works. This is a phrase that appears multiple times in the epistle to the Hebrews. And as Paul is summarizing the Christian faith that the Hebrews are tempted to abandon, he says in Hebrews 6 verse 1, uh, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He goes on to speak of various other aspects of just the basic Christian teaching. Uh, the doctrine of baptisms, that is of, of being received into church membership. The doctrine of the laying on of hands, church office and accountability the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, heaven and hell. These are the basic tenets of the Christian faith as he's addressing them here. And he says in terms of repentance and faith that true repentance is repentance from dead works. Those who are dead in transgressions and sins, trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, can only produce that which is dead and decaying and putrefying and abominable. That which was dead in the Old Testament, a dead animal or a, a dead human, the body, the carcass, was unclean. It was unclean. The works of those who are unclean are dead. They are abominable. They are putrefying. God requires a living sacrifice of one who is alive spiritually, who loves God, who is filled with the Spirit of God, whose good works are the handiwork of the living God. Jesus cleansed us with His blood, died for our sins, as Hebrews 9.14 says, so that we might serve the living God with works that are themselves alive, with grace and truth. And yet the works of those who are dead spiritually are dead works. Death is a separation from God. Their works, though God providentially brings them to pass, but their works are alienated from God. They themselves are alienated from the life of God. And so, they perform dead works. God's law requires us to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven by those angels who hear and do the will of God with joy and a worshipful, reverent attitude. Simply conforming ourselves outwardly to some moral principles and doing things that are practically beneficial, though we might say, wow, that's, you know, in terms of a politician or someone in, in uh, civil office, uh, that's, that's one in a thousand, right? We see a civil magistrate, a governor, a senator, a congressperson, a president, a vice president, who does things outwardly moral in some way and does things that are practically beneficial, and we're floored, we're amazed just because of the wicked land in which we live, the spiritual desert that we live in. But 
unless they do it as the angels do it in heaven, a worshipful, loving, God-honoring obedience, then it's dead. It's defiled in the sight of God. And um, listen to Malachi 1 verse 11. As he describes the works of some among God's people. For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. My friends, the unconverted may participate in the ordinances of God. They may do good works, charitable works, and so forth. But there's, there's just a deadness that often characterizes it. It's a drudgery. The law of God for them, unlike the believer, is burdensome to them. It's a heavy yoke. They don't love Christ and keep His commandments, but there's a weariness that goes about their service to the Lord. It's lifeless. It's joyless. It's mindless oftentimes and mechanical. The best works of the natural man are dead works. They're also proud works. The Pharisees, unconverted, yet religious, in Jesus' day, did all of their works Matthew 6, verse 1, all their charitable works to be seen by men, to receive a reward of a good reputation and influence in the covenant people of God. They did it for outward show. They did it for their own superiority complex. Luke 18 describes the Pharisee coming to the temple and looking around, comparing himself to other people and praying to God, God, I thank You that I am not like these other people who are wicked and disobedient. I thank You that that You enable me to do all these outward moral and ceremonial works. They're proud works. And pride is an abomination to God. Pride is the reason God kicked uh, Satan out of heaven with the demons. It is the, the snare and the condemnation of the devil himself. And it is the mark of the children of the devil who are in principle no less defiled than the devil himself for his will, his works, his lusts they do in their pride. You think of 2 Kings 10 where Jehu, we're told, performed what God called him to do. God raised up Jehu to uh, kill and wipe out the house of Ahab as a judgment against Ahab and Jezebel. And so Jehu takes up the sword and fulfills outwardly what God said to do. And God actually commends him for doing that. He commends this unconverted man for carrying out the outward will of God. And yet, uh, we're told 2 Kings 10.16, we're given a window into his inner life, into his attitude when he says to Jonadab, you know, hop in the chariot with me and come and see my zeal for the Lord. He's boasting in himself. He's showing off. It's all about him. It's it's not true zeal for the Lord's glory, though it's outwardly good 
to wipe out this wicked house of Ahab. That was great for the nation. It was God's mercy to do that through him, but he did it in pride. And so Hosea 1 verse 4 says that God is angry with the house of Jehu and that he's going to recompense the bloodshed of the house of Jehu. Jehu did what God said. He shed the blood that God said to shed, but he did it in a proud and self-centered way. And so it was nevertheless sinful in that respect. And that leads us thirdly to the fact that the natural man uh, has, even in his best works, selfishness. These are selfish works. Once again, Malachi, this time chapter 3, verse 14. You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance? And that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. What's in it for us, the people say. These are covenant people. These are worshipers of God who come to the temple, who gather at the synagogue Sabbath by Sabbath. And the Lord through Malachi says, it's an abomination. It's selfish. You're just asking what you can gain personally by this service of the Lord. And uh, the just prior to that, in Zechariah 7.5, listen to how the Lord speaks to His people. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? It's such a powerful repetition there. Did you really do it for me? For me? Says the Lord. And you see, the natural man is not doing his outwardly good works for the Lord. And therefore, as John Gerstner, R.C. Sproul's mentor, once said, these are bad good works. They may be good, like Jehu, wiping out the wicked idolaters. That was good. That was gracious of God to bring it about. It was outwardly good, but, but it was a bad good work because it was done proudly and selfishly. And in terms of pleasing God, God says you have to do it for me because I made you. I created you. I gave you these commandments so that you would love me and keep them and be conformed to me and have a relationship of love with me. And so for you to just give an outward pittance and do it for your own selfish purposes, your own ulterior motives, if you're not doing it for me, for me, then it's a bad good work. And that's what we find in Philippians chapter 1. I'm tempted to go to 1 Corinthians 13, but we'll save that for tonight. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ. These are preachers in the New Testament church. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love. So you can see here that even in the life of the church, uh, someone like myself has to examine my heart. Uh, you could say, well, ministering in the church, that's a good work. Yes, but these people were doing an outwardly, practically beneficial good work, but they did it out of selfish ambition to promote themselves over against the Apostle Paul. 
They had envy, they had strife, they had ulterior motives. There are others who were doing it for goodwill, out of a spirit of love. But these two types of preachers, they're doing the exact same thing outwardly in some cases. You might not be able to discern it at first glance. And yet inwardly, God looks down upon them and sees their ulterior motives. And, and those are bad good works, selfish works, also beastly works. Now, we can think from the standpoint of God's goodness to His people that we're thankful that God uh, permits natural affection to exist in the unconverted. We're thankful that mankind in certain ways instinctively inclines to certain general moral principles, whether it's for the right reasons or not, but there's something of natural affection, something of the work of the law written on the human heart, Romans 2, There's a sort of knee-jerk morality. Now, of course, in our society, God is judging us. He's removing that. But you still see a lot of resistance among wicked, unconverted, self-deifying people who are the lords of their own life, and yet they they have a knee-jerk morality, and they don't like this undermining of traditional moral virtues. And we're glad for that. But the fact of the matter is that morality by mere instinct makes the unconverted, even the conservative uh, with moral principles, fighting against woke culture, makes that person just a beast, an animal. Their morality is not a thoughtful, uh, knowledgeable response to a holy and loving God responding with gratitude and thoughtful, careful obedience to moral principles that they understand that have been uh, written upon their heart and their mind. It, it's, it's just a beastly kind of obedience. And Psalm 49 brings this out. Psalm 49, verse 18. Though while He lives, He blesses Himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. And that's not always sinful things, right? There are uh, great... Uh, wealthy individuals who have been generous and been philanthropists for many good causes. There are people God uses in, in the state and in society that uh, they're unconverted and yet they have something of uh, a legacy of good influence that they had in society or in their family or uh, giving to those in need. And they're praised and they're celebrated. And our nation sometimes sets aside days to celebrate the memory of this or that person for doing well for themselves and often well for other people. But it says, He shall go to the generation of His fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand. Remember we saw a couple verses ago, not one of them understands is like the beasts that perish. Like the beasts that perish. And in fact, in some ways, the natural man, even in the covenant community of the Lord, is worse than a beast. After all, Isaiah 1.3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. He goes on to say, when you do your quote-unquote, good works coming into my courts, performing the sacrifices, appearing before me in 
the, the, the seasonal feasts, the new moons, the Sabbath, the assemblies. It's an abomination. You're trampling my courts underfoot. And it, it's an, I hate it. My soul hates it. I'm weary with bearing these bad good works because it's just instinct. And it's even worse. It's not even, you know, the instinct doesn't even rise to the level of the ox or the donkey. Also, the natural man's best works are faithless works. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's one of the problems with Cain's offering to the Lord. Not only did he offer the fruits of the ground over against the animal sacrifice that God no doubt would have required, but he also offered it with a lack of faith. Of course, unbelief and disobedience go together. Right? I have no doubt that his disobedience in offering the wrong kind of sacrifice grew out and flowed out of a heart of unbelief. Not believing that he was a sinner. Not believing that he needed the blood of a sacrifice to wash away his sins. And in Hebrews 11, it draws the conclusion without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because if we don't believe God, Jesus says, believe God, believe also in Me. When we don't do that, we're calling God a liar. And you know what it's like when somebody calls you a liar, it's offensive. doesn't matter what else they've done. doesn't matter what else they're doing for you outwardly or of practical benefit. Somebody calls you a liar, that's offensive. God is offended by these faithless works. Jesus in John 6 when they ask Him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? He says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. This is the work of God. You will not be acceptable to God if you disbelieve Him. If He says you're a sinner, your righteousness is as filthy rags, only Christ can save you, There is an eternity set before you. You need to turn away from the things of this world and get right with God through Jesus Christ. And it's urgent and you could die at any moment and you say, ah, it's not that urgent. I'm not that sinful. I'm not going to pay any attention to it, at least not for now. You are despising the very work of God that He's calling you to do even here today. That is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, doesn't matter what else you've done, it has now corrupted and defiled all of your outwardly moral, practically beneficial, bad good works. The best works of the unconverted are also hypocritical works. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You've got Herod who hears John the Baptist and he does many things. He rearranges perhaps many aspects of his life, of his daily routine, and yet he will not give up his brother's wife Herodias. He will not give her up. It's a half-hearted obedience at best. It's a selective obedience. It's trying to give God, I'll give you this, this, and this. I'm going to barter and negotiate with God. I'll, I'll do many things, but I won't give up this bosom sin that I cling to, that I refuse to part with. It's like the religious leaders when they're in the process of murdering the Son of God and they're worried about defiling themselves for the Passover in Pilate's praetorium. Utterly hypocritical. 
making all these tweaks and changes to all these, I'm not going to say irrelevant, but, but the difference between a gnat and a camel, okay? Things that are less weightier matters of the law versus more weightier matters of the law. We, we make all these adjustments in, in the lighter matters, if you can say that, and we ignore justice and mercy and faith and faithfulness. And, and these are bad good works. They're counterfeit works in many cases. We see more and more in our society those, Isaiah 5.20, who call evil good and good evil. And, and so it's no longer trying to cover up my evil works and compensate with these ceremonial uh, trivialities, but there's a sense of just counterfeiting the principles of morality and boasting in my sin as if it's a good thing. You see this more and more in society but you can see it in the church. Uh, we, we refer to our, our anger as, well, I'm just passionate. Or you know, we refer to the fact that we're just, we just aren't doing what God's called us to do. We're being passive. We're not doing the hard things, exercising that authority and responsibility God's given us. And we use some kind of excuse that, well, we're just being meek. Or we, we, we try to find a way to redefine God's will and and really, we're living in sin, but we're counterfeiting it as if our sin is actually virtuous in some way. Like the Pharisees, who didn't take care of their elderly loved ones, but they said, well, I'm giving that money to the church. Matthew 15, 4-6. They found a way to not take care of their elderly loved ones and, and slap a Christian bumper sticker on it to make it sound virtuous. Counterfeit. Calling good evil and evil good. Uh, their works are also delusional, self-flattering works. Uh, we saw this in Psalm 36. Uh, he flatters himself in his own eyes. This is what we do by nature as sinners. Every man proclaims his own goodness, Proverbs says, but a faithful man who can find. So we see in all these ways our good works are disqualified and rejected by God. They're dead they're proud, they're selfish, they're beastly, they're faithless and unbelieving, hypocritical, counterfeit, and delusional and self-flattering works. Bad good works. And make no mistake, your eternal destiny hinges and depends entirely upon works. Either your own works or the works of Christ. The Bible is explicit that when, when the, the judge sits on that great white throne at the last day, the books will be opened and all mankind, every man, woman, and child that's ever existed on planet earth will be judged according to their works. We could cite verses till we could be here till the evening service. There, but Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13 we saw it again in Romans 2, 5 and following. We will be judged according to our works. And if that means your own works, if, if you delay and, and if you sit back and you don't take hold of Christ and you don't believe on Him and surrender yourself to Him and repent and turn to Him, then the fact is it will be true of you that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the judgment at the last day will be guilty. The only person who survives the judgment of the last day 
is the one who ceases from trying to get in by their own works and clings to and claims the works of Christ. Romans 4.4, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now that's not saying go out and live an ungodly life and you'll get to heaven. What it's saying is the person, I mean we are all ungodly, right? So the person who recognizes I am ungodly, in my own works, I am filthy rags headed for hell, deserving of God's infinite wrath and curse, consciously for all eternity, the worm dies not, the fire is not quenched, so on and so forth. I am ungodly, and so I'm going to stop trying to work my way to heaven as wages, as if I deserve something better than hell, because the moment I stand before the judgment and say, give me what I deserve, uh, the trap door is going to open up and I fall into the everlasting flames. And so I say I am ungodly, and so I'm not going to try to get in by my own works. I'm not going to work my way to heaven or rest in my works that I'm not so bad after all. I'm going to confess my ungodliness and cling to the work of Jesus Christ. And He will declare me righteous for the sake of what Jesus has done for me. That is your only hope. And Galatians 3 tells us that all who are of the works of the law, if you're resting on your good works, if you're saying, I'm just not that bad, especially compared to her or him, and that's your attitude, you are under a curse. The curse of God, which can only be taken away through Christ, who endured that curse on the cross. So you need to look to Christ's works. On the cross, Jesus didn't say, Okay, now come and get it. He said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. And you need to rest in the perfection, the completeness of His finished work on the cross to satisfy the demands of God's just condemnation against you and to fulfill every precept of God's law requisite unto eternal life. It is Finished, And God testified that it is finished by raising Him again for our justification. You have to confess uh, that He has done it, as Psalm 22 says. He has done it. And listen to the way Paul puts it in Romans 10. Uh, He says the Jews, verse 3, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. And they sought to establish their own righteousness, not submitting to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice how he characterizes the righteousness of works and of the law versus the righteousness of Christ. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them or better translated or understood, shall have life by them. It's by the works of the law that they will have life. Jesus said to the rich young ruler that if you would enter life, keep the commandments. So that's the righteousness of the law. Moses talked about that, and he pointed people to Christ who was yet to come. He pointed to the fact that the law brings a curse and condemnation. 
verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And then he goes and quotes Moses. So Moses is not opposed to the gospel. He quotes Moses and really applies it to his own context. Listen to this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, what he's saying is uh, that you did not contribute anything to your salvation, but the sin, I suppose. But you didn't contribute anything to your own salvation. Jesus did it all. In His humiliation coming down out of heaven, you didn't bring Him down. The Jews, by the way, thought that the Messiah's arrival would be a reflection on their own obedience. If they were obedient enough, then the Messiah would come. This is why the rabbinic Jews believe that although Jesus should have come in the first century, they, they say this explicitly, He was supposed to come in the first century. Uh, they don't call it the first century, but you know what I mean. They, they, believe, they believe He was supposed to come when Jesus of Nazareth was raised up, but He didn't come because we didn't keep the law. And, and Paul is repudiating that rabbinic teaching and he's saying um, that... You didn't bring Christ down. And you didn't raise Him up. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You didn't bring Him down to, to fulfill His humiliation and suffer and die and obey for sinners. You didn't raise Him up from the dead. You didn't contribute to any of these aspects of His redemptive work. He has done it. He has done the work. And my friends, all those who find rest in the finished work of Christ, are equipped by God with a zealous capacity for good works. It is as we rest in the finished work of Christ that Titus 2.14 says we are made then, having been redeemed by Christ, we are made zealous for good works. Hebrews 9.14, and I'm wrapping up here momentarily, Hebrews 9.14, something for us to meditate on throughout this Sabbath day. Such a powerful verse uh, and su- such a, a, a grace and privilege that God gives us in a world where mankind is universally in sin and, and is incapable of that which is spiritually good. God has redeemed us. He's saved us. He's forgiven us. He inhabits us. We're His handiwork and He enables us to do truly, genuinely, albeit imperfectly, good works. Listen to this, Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, so there's the work of Christ on our behalf, but how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works? So everything we said here, the, the deadness, the pride, the selfishness, Uh, the faithlessness, all these imperfections, even in our sanctified good works at times, but all of these imperfections that corrupt and contaminate our works, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of them. And it does that so that, it says, to serve the living God. Why did Jesus save you? To do good works. And my friends, the world can't do them or its works are so inadequate and uh, just not what they need to be. We need more Christians doing good works. We need to be zealous for good works. We need to be zealous 
to do what God has commanded us to do, to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, loving Him, loving others, stirring one another to love and good works, and being faithful in the spheres and in the responsibilities that He has given us. Don't bite off more than you can chew, but do what God has called you to do. Be zealous for good works in your own heart, your own life, your family, your children, your brothers and sisters, your community as you have opportunity. Do good works, especially within the household of faith. And the beauty of Christianity is that among those who are saved by Christ, all of them do good. There's not one of them that does not do good. Every Christian is zealous for good works. We backslide, I know. But overall, we're sanctified in the truth. And not one of us as true Christians, not one of us fails to do good. No, not one. What an encouragement. What a contrast that that gives us much to contemplate on this Sabbath day. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We marvel at how You have saved us from the clutches of the wicked one. We who are by nature children of wrath, slaves of the prince of the power of the air, who works in the children of disobedience. And yet now we have been redeemed by the work of Christ and become children of obedience, even the obedience of faith. We ask, Lord, that Your Word would be mighty and powerful today to convert sinners, to equip the saints, that we might be stirred up and stir up one another to love and to good works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.